Welcome to Profit's Healthcare Transformers podcast, where we'll be talking to leaders in healthcare who are focused on transforming their organizations to drive the next level of growth for their business and for healthcare. Hosted by Priya Anasia, Lindsay Mosby, Paul Schrimpf, and Jeff Gorgi. Transformation is one of those terms that has a lot of layers to it. Sometimes it's about innovation. Sometimes it's about shifting the way you do business. Sometimes it's to your overall operating model. And other times it's to a specific department or function. It's also about people, helping them navigate the discomfort that comes with change, but also motivating them to engage in the journey of transformation from the CEO to the newest employee. It's a journey, and that's why we created this podcast, to break down this multidimensional, dynamic topic of transformation, one story at a time. Are you ready to dive in? Hi, I'm Jeff Gorgie. And I'm Lindsay Mosby. We are the hosts of today's podcast. We are pleased to have with us today, Dr. Alistair Erskine, the Chief Digital Health Officer of Mass General Brigham. Alistair, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. Tell us about yourself and tell us one fun kind of personal tidbit here that's uh, maybe off topic. I see. So I'm a physician, internal medicine and pediatrics. Uh, I guess one thing, I have three kids that are all teenagers. So that's been an interesting experience. And the thing that I enjoy doing the most is sailing. I always look for work alongside water ways so that I can so that I can sail. That's awesome. I wish this podcast could provide you some opportunities for that, but uh, sadly we can't. Alistair, tell us about your about your role. And I'm curious, particularly if it's the case, like when was it created? Are you the first occupant of the role? And if you were, what was the genesis of creating a chief digital health officer role for the organization? Actually, I am the first person in this particular role that was created about four years ago. And I think probably the, the the best way to describe kind of how it came to be is going back a few years in terms of how physicians were getting involved into informatics and helping out with, you know, prototypical electronic health records. You were, you know, you start off as a champion, kind of sitting on some committees and you had some protected time. We could take on a formal role. Then the role of the CMIO, the chief medical information officer came along that was really primarily focused on the electronic health record. But that wasn't sufficient to be able to manage all the healthcare transaction. That sort of started to ease into the data side. So as the data side and as some of the care management aspects started to expand, you started hearing about these roles of chief health information officer, which was a bit bigger than medical. And then as the role continued to expand in terms of its scope, especially as the consumer side came into view and and people started moving into that space, this digital health officer role came to be. So it's really kind of been a progression. And I think that the next role beyond this will be a chief information and digital officer. So that is something that I'm noticing that is becoming more common. That full uh, scope of activity, both platforms and service delivery, I think will be what that next group of uh, leaders will go. For now, I'm quite happy as the chief digital health officer. So Alistair, how much time do you spend practicing medicine? The official answer is only a few weeks a year. The unofficial answer is it kind of depends what you mean by practicing medicine. Ah, So I'm board certified in internal medicine and in pediatrics, but I'm also board certified in clinical informatics. And so the question ends up being, is that a practice of medicine? It's a, it's a, it's a board specialty, subspecialty, and I certainly do plenty of that all day long. 
And maybe when the field finally matures to the fact that clinical informaticians are on the front lines and are part of the clinical team and are providing assistance in terms of when to use this AI or how to use that algorithm or how to interpret that decision support or how to go off and and find patients like the ones in front of you to see what kind of data and, and predictive analytics can be performed. Maybe that's when it really will be considered the practice of clinical informatics. But for the time being, I think we're sort of in this adolescent stage. Yeah. What was the aha for you as you kind of, you know, all the time that went into medical school and getting into the practice of medicine that said you could create more impact in a different way? Was there, was there an aha or a singular moment? It was a very specific and singular <laughs> moment, as oh, a matter of fact. Good, 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 and good. I'll try to describe it. So I'm sitting at the nurse's station and I'm writing a note on the neurology floor. And, you know, it was a consult note for one of the neurology patients. And I look over at the, at the unit clerk who is carrying a recycle bin closer to her desk. And she is taking reams of paper off of the printer and directly putting them into the recycling bin. And so as I'm writing, I'm thinking, and I look up and I'm thinking, okay, what's going on there? Because it's got to be a story, right? And so what happened is these reams, and I went to her and asked her and she said, well, look, it's, really, it's quite annoying. Every single morning, every afternoon, I got to feed this thing. And then nobody looks at these things. So I've got to go and recycle them and something I do every single day. So long and short of it is that reports had been created several years ago and were being distributed to every single unit on every single floor and something to the tune of millions of dollars worth of ink and paper were being spent on this. That's something that people weren't using yeah. and actually would take them away from, from a busy person at, right. at a unit. So I thought, wow, this is great. I'm going to be able to go to a committee and in a couple of minutes, I'll be able to tell them, you know what, turn it off. And then we can save, you know, all this time and energy and effort. And what I discovered is when I went to the committee, whatever it may have been, and said, turn it off, people were appalled. And I was hooked at that point. Uh -huh. I always thought, oh, there's something here. The idea that the actual practical implementation of technology is distant sometimes and foreign to the concept of it and the idea. And in fact, so many times subsequent to that, I would sit in a room full of my colleagues and very smart and intelligent people who would come up with a really clever process. And then I would go back into practice and thought, this does not work in the hurly burly of clinical care. When people are going off and being called away and the computer not being nearby, having to log in, whatever it may be. And so like I really got hooked on the application of technology on the front line and the impact of technology on people in the real world. So give us a circa 20 years ago, 10 years ago. So this is uh, 2001. Many more examples of that subsequently, but that's really, that was a defining moment. It was more about what is your actual clinical workflow as a doctor? What do you actually do? What is actually important to you? It wasn't the technical expertise that seemed to be valuable. It was more so the, the, the clinical workflow experience that I had and the ability to be able to translate that as a Rosetta Stone into business specifications that could then be you know, digitized or put into a, a process. Got it. So when I asked the question, obviously, did you help create the role? It's because we're hearing more and more about first time chief digital officers, right? Or, or people who created their own job spec and arranged, worked with their management team, but they're relatively new to it. And I think you are, I think it's probably fair to say one of the pioneers perhaps, right? You know, going a couple of decades uh, ago into it. I can think of many pioneers that came before me that I was able to jump on that bandwagon. 
And it was a time where CMIOs was still very new. And in fact, it was as difficult as me handing a piece of paper to my boss and saying, I kind of like this title and this role. What do you think? He's like, okay, sounds good. And that was about it. There was no fellowship training program. There was no years of experience that people had at the time because it was still fairly new. So we're going to weave here, if we can, between kind of your your path and career and just kind of Mass General Brigham and the current and future, if we could. So four years ago, the role was created. What was the agenda or the emerging need that said, we need to do this? And then maybe take us from there to the current day where you said to us, you know, prior to uh, prior to this conversation about uh, a digital transformation journey that's underway at Mass yeah. General Brigham. So at the time, I actually came at a really good time and what was referred to as partners healthcare back then. Right. It was the tale of the sort of overall implementation of Epic. And this is after partners had tried everything else and then finally relented and then ended up choosing Epic. Yeah. And a very uh, clever set of folks chose to do one Epic enterprise build as opposed to the federated system that partners really was with two big academic medical centers, Mass General Hospital and the Brigham and Women's hospital decided to go with just really one system. And so I arrived right as we were finishing up each individual implementation, it was time to optimize and to augment uh, what we were doing. So beyond the traditional electronic health record and more towards consumer experience, provider experience, the researcher and the research participant experiences and trying to improve going from some of some of the digitization that had occurred to redesigning those workflows to take advantage of the digital tools that existed. That's really what I started with. So I yeah. really started. And, it, and by the way, at the time, that was the largest single instance implementation of Epic that Epic had done. COVID helped get us uh, catalyzed. I think the consumerism piece definitely uh, helped as well. And then this, this understanding and appreciation for the fact that labor is the most expensive part of healthcare. And therefore, automation and improve business processes was was all part of what needed to occur for the transformation process. That's great. I'd love, Alistair, if you would paint a picture of the state of consumer centricity three years from now at Mass General Brigham. What is the consumer going to feel, experience, and how is it going to be different from today? We are inheriting the advances that the retail, you know, travel industry, other industries are setting expectations to the consumers in healthcare, which is a very good thing. And three years from now, we will have many more transactions available online and many more manual transactions, even voice transactions that are helped with online, with what I would say digital tools. So I'll give you an example. If you call the call center today, you get a human and that human may or may not have access to information in your medical record. So if you need to make a primary care appointment, you have to tell the agent who your primary care doctor is, maybe spell their name, and then they find it and then they help you book that appointment almost manually voice. In the future, that really is not necessary anymore. First of all, the computer will listen to the questions that you have and decide whether at that moment you need a human or the computer can help manage that conversation by itself. And that's even true for booking an appointment. So we have... Again, this idea that the technical tools that we have, the digital tools really should be able to be applied to any and all patients, not just the ones that are savvy with smartphones. So going back to three years from now, the website that the person visits will be 
more tailored to their specific type of need. So if they're a diabetic patient, they'll see diabetic type of services. And we'll use standard industry ways to be able to know more and the propensity of different consumers to have interest in certain things. We will create an experience that will be much, much closer to a retail experience in terms of, of the stickiness that you end up having in the, in, in the marketing and sort of care taken. We want patients to get great care, but we also want to make sure they're cared for during their journey. And I think that's the part, the second part is the part that's really missing. You, the patient today has to serve as their own care manager and connect the dots between they have a surgery to the physical therapy appointment. Yeah. And we want to yeah. make sure that that is premeditated and scripted out and that the patient can sort of be on that journey. So in order to be able to do that, the patient will enter basically a mall on the website and that mall will have a number of different stores. And one of the stores will be the patient portal. They could be, again, things about hypertension management or diabetes management or how to prepare for surgery, how to meet your care team. And this mall, this patient gateway, essentially, that we will create will help us understand ultimately what patients are looking for, where there's a gap, and do a much better match between what the patient really needs and what the healthcare services are that are available to them at, in a location that's more convenient to them, in a time frame that's more convenient to them, and with the right sets of language and cultural aspects that are required. So I think today it's a bit one-stop shop, and I think it still requires a patient, if they have a heart problem, to know that they need to go see a cardiologist that's an electrophysiologist for a heart rhythm. That Those are jargon words in the healthcare space that are just unfamiliar to patients. Right, right. Instead, a, a patient should be able to say, my heart rate is not normal, and we should be surfacing the right special mm-hmm. specialist without having to expect the patient to understand the, the lexicon and the jargon of healthcare. So let's stay here for a minute. Data is clearly a currency, right? It is It is 100% a currency. And I think if we watch what's happening in, in the financial services industry right now and how decentralized, safely anonymized and democratized platforms like the blockchain, like the cryptocurrency markets that are popping up, that's upending the nature of the of the financial services industry and the way that they handle data and who has access to it and who gets to quote unquote own it. I think we can only imagine that that's coming for healthcare, that interoperability, that ability to use things back and forth. Everything that you just said speaks to the need to be able to share and exchange and manipulate data. What are the signals you're seeing that that that's coming or that people are starting to think differently about we don't own this data we broker this data and are you seeing signals that make you feel like yeah we we might be able to get there the first thing that pops into my into my mind as you describe that is regulation and privacy are major important components of managing that data of course and so and on the blockchain part of the problem is also the fact that that data is is mutable all the time it's constantly changing there just to give kind of a, a size and proportion we're doing approximately 53 million transactions on the database per second in our system. So on a blockchain, that would be for something like that that's affecting the patient's chart. The blockchain would do a good job of saying, all right, I want to access this person's record and I'm going to be able to sort of log in the fact that I'm accessing the record as opposed to storing the electronic health record on the mm-hmm. blockchain, which would be, I think, overwhelming. But your point about, really it's about sharing and interoperability and trying to squeeze 
all the different ways that we capture uh, clinical data from humans into something which is kind of a Rosetta Stone and is, is standardized and normalized so that other people can interpret that that blood pressure that came from this organization is actually a valid blood pressure in that organization. There are two key things that are missing in the industry. One is the universal healthcare data model that everybody agrees to that is comprehensive enough to be able to handle all the healthcare transactions and different data types, all the way from information in a row of, of vital signs all the way to kind of ultrasound images and, and so forth. The second major thing that's missing is the vendor-neutral healthcare app store that sits on top of the platforms and transactional system. In fact, a platform is supposed to be extensible. That's the whole benefit of a platform. But it's not necessarily as extensible as it has been in other industries. And, you know, and since you're interested on the innovation side of things as well, that is a major gap. And it's not a gap because we don't know how to do it. It's a gap. Because, you know, there are key players that do not want this to happen. And so what, this is something that the Office of National Coordinator has understood many years ago and has been trying to promote by, by having certification, for example, of certain key standards like the fire standards and in other standards and so forth and forcing the electronic health records to create APIs. But we haven't gotten to the point where there's a robust enough adopted set of APIs that you can read and write back to the point where where we can have a thriving ecosystem. In fact, if you think about an example of Apple and the Apple App Store, you know, of course, that's a good example of the kind Google Play would be the same thing, but Apple makes available to the general public Swift, which is the language that you write your apps in. And then various different people around the planet and the collective genius of, of the human race writes in this Swift code all kinds of clever things that sit in a, in a reproducible way. This is not how I would describe how healthcare is being built. If you have big monolithic systems and thousands of, of digital health applications that try to bolt onto it, and what ends up, you end up with patients that have a fragmented experience, providers that are burning out with, you know, with pajama time and working uh, late at night trying to kind of catch up on, on, on all this. And there's a real impedance to that innovation as a result. What do you think the magic wand is, right? Like if I think about other industries that have been sort of, have faced reckonings, right? That the, the establishment has faced reckonings. What's the potential reckoning for the Epics and the Cerners of the world or, or those who right now are kind of holding on to the, the bulk of the, of the currency, if we keep calling yeah. data currency? What has to happen for that to get unlocked? So let me be really clear too. I do not want to demonize the electronic no, health record. Not. At they, all. They, I don't, in yeah. fact, I think they have done an enormous amount of good in the application. Because the applications are safe. The applications yeah. are stable. They work. Right. I've seen plenty of little digital health apps that, you know, blow up after six months and they, they don't work. So right. the reckoning is, you know, we saw it in the cable industry where, you know, the DOCSIS standard really wasn't a standard until different cable companies came together and said, okay, you can buy this modem and whether you're, you know, working with Comcast or whomever else, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. It wasn't until Apple decided to endorse the FIRE standard, Fast Healthcare Interoperable Resources, FIRE Resources, that there was a galvanizing effect. And then that, that standard that had been sort of kicked around ended up becoming now part of regulation, ended up becoming part of every vendors, you know, new and improved, we're even fire, you know, based and fire compatible and so forth. So I think when big 
technology organizations outside of healthcare end up adopting healthcare standards, people pay attention. I think that makes a difference. So what will cause a reckoning when it comes to the vendor neutral app store? I think that it will it will be it will have to be the demand that comes from organizations that are not yet satisfied with their monolith and they need more and mm-hmm. they're finding it's too expensive. What about the mass general Brigham business model is going to have to change three years from now? And what will it take to get there? I think the what has to change is we want a healthcare team to be taking care of patient, not a doctor. Yeah. We want to spend the time on closing the healthcare gaps, not just, you know, order medications when they may or may not be required or necessary. So I think we need to make a substantial move away from fee-for-service to value-based care. By the way, we're exactly in the process of doing that. So we have created a brand new organization that takes all the community hospitals that we have and all the primary care and, and specialty doctors that we have in the community and put them under one organization. And that organization also has our health plan in it. They're thinking all day, mm, how do I shift yes. side of service to a side of service that's better? How do I make sure that the referral is distributed across the whole system instead of it just in one academic medical center? And how do I keep care closer to wherever the patient may be coming from and still provide the same level of care? So I think that is fundamental for us to be able, I mean, we can do all the digital work in the world if we're still too expensive and patients and companies can't afford us, it's not going to work. So that means less labor. That means more automation. That means shift inside of service. And that means distributing that, making sure that we have the guardrails for care available everywhere. We have a lot of the infrastructure for that, but I don't know that we fully committed yet to that model other than the fact that we've said we need to do it. We understand it's part of our of our future and we've committed our, our plan to it and we're executing against that plan. But I think three years from now, we'll be a lot further along in the value-based care journey onto which we can tack on the population health management and we can tack on the home-based care aspects of things that we can tack on the, the, you know, the episodic episodes of care as well in a much more comprehensive way. Well, I know we only have a few minutes left, but I'd love to do one quick pivot, maybe from one version of digital to another version of, of digital. And I think, you know, there continues to be a lot of talk around and about digital therapeutics. Jeff and I were talking the other day about remembering that uh, Dr. Topol said, you know, they're going to start, we'll be prescribing apps instead of medicine. What was that? 10 plus years ago or whatever. So I would love to hear a little bit about your thoughts on the the current play and maybe the long play around digital therapeutics. Do you do you see this as something that will continue to find its way into sort of the, the clinical realm or not? And, and how come? Some of the digital therapeutics are fairly fragile in the long term in terms of, you know, what they depend upon. And a good example of that is digital therapeutics that have a number of different AI and machine learning aspects to them where you start moving, moving those tools to different organizations, their data is different and it, the tool doesn't work in the way that's mm-hmm. expected and needs to really be retrained over and over again, revalidated to make sure that it actually works the way it's supposed to. But the idea that you can move some of the conversation that otherwise happens in a very hurried 20 minutes with a primary care doctor into a home where somebody has a smartphone where they can learn about you know their particular condition and then have these touch points throughout the day that reminds them to either perform a certain action or take them a certain medication. It would be nuts not to take advantage of that if that was available. Yeah, and if a Google Nest is $29. Right, exactly. Right. 
Part of the barrier to entry there is, again, sort of this fragmentation that occurs on the digital health apps. If I just have diabetes, then I use my diabetic a digital therapeutic and that works fine. But then if I have more than one medical problem, which, yep. by the way, so many people do, now I'm going to have five or six different kinds of digital therapeutics that don't work together well at all. And so I'm left as a patient, maybe an 80-year-old lady that mm-hmm. has 15 medications, you know, seven of which have digital therapeutic augmented functions to try to understand how to weave those together. Right. And I think that's going to be a, a pretty difficult proposition. So I think we have to think about what's the digital divide that we want to avoid. We have to think about what's the digital fragmentation that we want to avoid. How do we wrap this into, and then what's the kind of support that we need to be able to provide to patients and their families and proxies to be able to, to use digital therapeutics to their full potential. It's a fascinating space, that's for sure. Dr. Alistair Erskine, thank you. It was a pleasure. We enjoyed the conversation. It was great having you on the podcast. Thanks for listening to Profits Healthcare Transformers podcast. This podcast is produced by Jared Johnson and his wonderful team at Shift Forward Health. And a big thank you to our hosts, Priya Anasia, Lindsay Mosby, Paul Schrimpf, and Jeff Gorgie. If you liked today's episode, you can find more great content like this at profit.com slash thinking. I'm Anna Kuno, the senior editor of this podcast. Thank you for listening.